0: It's time for Talking Pictures Trivia. A quick friendly reminder, if it's trash night, take out the trash.
1: Welcome to Talking Pictures Trivia, the podcast in which a group of geographically challenged friends explore movies through trivia as an excuse to keep their friendships alive. I'm one of these friends and today's host, Nick, and with me is Tom and KJ. Great to have you back as always. Additionally, joining us as a guest for this episode is. Doug. Great to have you, Doug. Doug is a longtime friend of ours going back to elementary school. You may remember Doug from our first episode, Raiders of the Lost Ark, as well as Solaris. It's great to have Doug back to kick off another season. After triple-checking, we verified that Doug still conveniently likes movies. For those joining us for the first time, we start off each episode with a movie quiz, as these pivotal questions will determine who earns today's trivia crown. Then, once the fierce competition is over, we followed up with our famous movie rant, where anything goes. KJ, tell us about today's movie.
0: This week, we'll be heading back to 1973. A ceasefire has been called for the Vietnam War, Elvis is holding a concert in Hawaii, and the World Trade Center officially opens in New York City. In the middle of all this, George Lucas releases his second movie, American Graffiti. George Lucas, of course, also known for THX 1138, Star Wars, Star Wars, Star Wars, and Star Wars. American Graffiti shared theaters with Enter the Dragon, Westworld, Mean Streets, and Jesus Christ Superstar. Nick's gonna be quizzing us today. Nick, how would you describe American Graffiti?
1: Before I go into that, the theme for our first three episodes this season are movies that the quizzer has meant to watch for quite some time, but hasn't got around to it yet. Being a Star Wars fan, I've always wanted to watch George Lucas's first hit movie, American Graffiti. All I knew is this movie did not take place a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. We're introduced to a group of teenagers during their last day of summer vacation in 1962. We follow these characters as they branch out on a series of mishaps and escapades over a single night, literally until the sun comes up. Lessons are learned by all, well, some, and we're awkwardly informed about some of their futures in the end. Tom, if you had only one word to describe American graffiti, what would it be?
2: Chrome. How about you, KJ? My word would be nostalgia.
0: How about you, Doug? (laughs) Bitchin'. Nice.
1: (laughs) And my word would be vignettes. It's time for Movie Quiz. For this week in Movie Quiz, we will be having four questions. Each question will be worth one point, and there's a chance there may be a bonus tiebreaker. We shall see.
0: It's time for question one.
1: What is the license plate number on John Milner's boss ride? Locked in. Locked in.
0: Locked in.
1: Okay. KJ, you were last. Start it up.
0: I don't know. I didn't see it. But if I was George Lucas and this was my second movie and I was going to put a license plate that was going to come up in a trivia podcast, it would be THX1138.
3: Doug. I believe. It was close to that. I think it's THX 138.
2: Tom. I think it Yeah, it was THX 138. The reason why I say that is just before coming on, I listened to a podcast about American graffiti and learned that California license plates
1: only had uh, six digits at that time. And the points goes to Tom and Doug. KJ, very, very close. They are correct. There were only six digits, so it was T H one three eight, And as Tom started to bring up here, or actually all of you did, KJ, I think you started too, George Lucas's first film, and in fact, the first one was a short in, in college called Electronic Labyrinth THX 11384EB, which interestingly enough, we'll be covering early in this season in a shorts episode. I have not seen that. Um, the other one was his first movie was the feature THX 1138, which is what I had seen. And I thought I had seen when we were talking about the short, but it turns out it was the full one. So we'll see how that short goes. And the interesting thing I wanted to bring up about this movie, just a little bit of trivia note here. This movie was a challenge by Francis Ford Coppola to George Lucas because his first movie was pretty much a flop. I mean, it really didn't get much. uh, uh Acclaim and he challenged him and said, Can you just make a more mainstream movie? And Lucas pretty much said, You want mainstream? Fine, I'll make you a mainstream movie. And he made this one. It had a $77,000 budget. It pulled in over $115 million in US box alone, making it one of the most profitable movies of all time. The reason I wanted to bring up this question, in addition to just talking about John Miller's boss ride, was how this movie really played on nostalgia. This is what uh, Lucas really focused on a lot. What were your guys thoughts on the approach of uh, using nostalgia in this movie?
2: I found it a little confusing and I, you know, we do notes in our, our preparation for this. Um, and I, I, hesitant to talk about this in any more detail because I imagine it might interfere with the question, uh, but there's a particular way this movie ends. This movie is, is sort of, um, you know, people coming of age, right? It's a coming of age story and it's looking back when we were young and um, and and that type of thing. And it it sort of captures the aimlessness of being young and it also captures at the same time the the long 1950s, right? The the 50s that sort of end in November of 1963. And yet when you get to the the end of the the picture and this idea of kind of loss of innocence, I, I don't exactly know what I'm supposed to to feel about this this period of nostalgia. Is it or about Lucas's feelings towards this era? I mean it seems nostalgic on one sense he seems to love the the kind of um pre-british invasion rock and roll he loves the cars back then he loves driving culture but at the same time there the the movie ends with this kind of note of um of almost hostility and it's it really reframes the film you just watched in a way that i found a little confusing is this george
0: lucas's nostalgia how old would he have been at this point was was the nostalgia off because he was
2: not he graduated uh, modesto high school i think okay in okay so it does line up
1: yeah okay. so this was directly related to yeah yeah this is like if you grew up and went back into for us the 80s right
0: actually for us it would be the 90s right because that's when we would have been driving around and cruising
1: yeah yes you're right you're right you're right
0: but i wonder if that end note represents like you're saying, Tom, the end of that 50s. So he's also saying, yep, it was this night. That was it. And then the world fell apart and everything was...
2: Yeah, everything like this was the the golden age. And after this, everything everything went to pieces. Yeah, I, I mean, sure, that's fine, I, I, I suppose. I, I, I could get on board with that reading, but it seems, um, I don't know, kind of somewhat disappointing.
3: Yeah, I'm not sure if I can really relate to that era you know, not having lived through it It's a few generations or a few decades before, but um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not quite sure what to make of it either. I,
2: I will say what I liked about it. I, I do like how he gets at the sort of aimlessness of being a young man. And this is a, this is a man's movie, right? The, the female characters in this movie are plot points, you know, <laughs> they're, they're not, Particularly, it's true. Yeah, they're they're not particularly developed. It's about these four lead characters. And uh, it, it's kind of a problem in the movie, I think, that they they sort of don't have a lot of regard for the, the female characters other than uh, plot mechanisms. But anyway, it, it's about these four main characters and the sort of aimlessness of being young. And I think that was probably the most interesting thing uh, about the movie. But he, in his depiction of the, the 1950s, and i know it's 1962 but like the 50s were like up till the death of kennedy really um he's selecting music that ranges from about 1954 to to the beach boys which you know which is 1962 the song they listen to um that john is listening to and he's like "Ah, i hate this crap you know rock died with Buddy boys Yeah, Yeah, yeah yeah rock died with buddy holly and so it's not necessarily a depiction of Lucas's, Lucas's 1962, his coming of age. It's a depiction of an era that that is longer than the, the thing that Lucas experienced. It's not just about this moment of transition, which is kind of lame, right? It's like, oh, you have to go to college and move on, or you have to stay with your girlfriend and realize... The the, the recognitions the characters have are kind of boring, I think. Um, what's more interesting is the fact that he is highlighting an entire era, right? and it, the, the entirety of the 50s using the soundtrack.
1: And going back to my point about uh, Coppola's challenge... I think he was extremely successful because just like Doug said, we are not from that generation. So we can't relate to the nostalgia. But what he did was he said, OK, all the people that this was a decade ago when they were in their high, you know, living the high life in high school. Now they're out there in the real world and they're reminiscing. So he hit it hard. And that's why this movie made so much money because of the people who missed those times. So I think if we were born around the same time, as Lucas, we would think that this movie was even better greater than they did back then just because we missed that period of our life just like when we look back in the 90s and for some reason KJ I still look back in the 80s as you can tell by most of my movie selections that's why I think we're missing a little something there of why this was so successful in that time period
2: but you don't you don't have a little affection or or recognition of like being 17 18 senior year of high school and like not having anything to do. So you drive around and go to the diner or we're all from New Jersey. So we go to diners in New Jersey. That's what you do. Um, but, but that kind of, um, that kind of aimlessness, that's what I like most about the movie. And that I actually felt nostalgic for that, for being 18 years old and and not having a location, but only having a, uh, a Dodge dynasty, which was my first car boat of a car. Manual blinkers. Yep, manual blinkers.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Not by design. (laughs) It's time
0: for question two.
1: While cruising the town, Kurt has a chance encounter at a stoplight with a driver he refers to as the most dazzling creature he's ever seen. His words, not mine. What was the vehicle this vision, this goddess drove? Locked in. Locked in.
3: Although I don't think I have that much detail locked in, but
0: I, I I don't, I don't even know if I'm going to Yeah, locked in.
3: I'm going to go with
2: Tom to give KJ a chance (laughs) to gather his thoughts. It's a white Ford Thunderbird
3: duck. I was just going to say white Thunderbird.
2: I was just going to say Ford.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. KJ will get (laughs) 0.5. And, uh, Tom and Doug will get the full point. It was a, now this they did not specify in the movie, but it was a 1956 Ford Thunderbird. I would have also accepted T-Bird. And the reason I brought this up is this is one of the vignettes that we are introduced to through one of the main characters, Kurtz, travels in this film. Uh, Before I go into that, I did want to just share that I didn't know this. The blonde in the T-Bird was actually Suzanne Summers of TV's Three's Company. And also she's a big uh, beauty and health entrepreneur. So I just thought that was an interesting little tidbit before she was in that show. Uh, That's one of her roles. But really I wanted to focus on, and I think Tom started this conversation in the last question, these different stories, the different vignettes that follow the main characters. What did you all think about that way as a storytelling method? the movie
0: to me felt like a soundtrack that happened to have a movie with it. And I thought it worked great. I mean, every time the next song came on, I was dancing in my chair to it or bopping along with it. Um, and, and I think you, you see echoes of this movie too, like uh, dazed and confused. Um, there's gotta be one for the nineties by this point. I don't know. Um, but, but I really like the idea of taking the soundtrack of an era, putting some kind of film to it, and making us all smile and oh, remember when? Like I'm a sucker for these these kind of movies. So I'm I thought the vignettes they worked right. They're not overly memorable. They're just
2: something to have on while you're listening to the fun music.
1: I also thought of Days and Confused, so It's funny that you should uh, mention that.
2: Yeah, when Lucas was telling Ron Howard about it when he was auditioning, he described it as a musical to which Ron Howard said, I, I, well, I can't sing. And he said, well, that's not really a problem, which confused Ron Howard. Um, But apparently that was Lucas's innovation here was this idea of, uh, uh, have, have, having music constantly playing throughout the the movie to indicate what kind of mood he was in when he was writing the scene.
3: Yeah. So I I think it works. Uh, this genre of film, it's not necessarily my favorite, you know, at, I think I, I would put it in the category of I enjoy watching it once and probably don't need to watch it again, but I, I think this probably set the template for a lot of these other movies going forward. I, I don't know if there's were, was any before this at least that I know of that,
1: um, you know, kind of set that stage. It actually opened up the doors for all this like 50s, 60s nostalgia, because Happy Days and Grease and all that stuff came after this film, so it did open the door up for that, to look back at that genre. I'm on the same camp as Doug where I've seen it. I can talk about it in this episode. I think I'm good. I didn't buy into the nostalgia of that time. And I think that as I was saying before, it's just because I'm not a creature from those times. I'm not from then. So I, I don't have that strong you know, correlation that people who grew up anywhere within that you know, plus or minus a decade might at least understand it better.
2: I had no problem identifying with the characters, you know. And actually, the sense as I said before—the sense of nostalgia for me was um, aimless youth, right? That—that's something that kind of exists year to, you know, all, all the time. <laughs> you know, being young is kind of in part being aimless because you're not burdened with responsibility. You're not burdened with an aim, um, with a target rather. Uh, the, the kind of vignette thing reminds me a little bit of of Altman films. Have anybody seen Robert Altman movies? Uh, he uses that a lot, like Nashville is a film that comes out around this time that we are doing probably on this podcast because it's, it's one of my favorites. So sorry uh, in advance. Um, and, and so that kind of, that actually, the vignette part of it, I liked a lot. What I I had trouble with was actually the way character development was sort of staged. It was sort of kind of lame. I I kind of wasn't convinced by it.
3: Yeah, I I thought there were a bunch of events that were just stuck in there to move the plot along. Things that didn't, they felt maybe a little bit forced, but it was like, for example, um, uh, the girl going in the car with uh, John Milner. It just was very abrupt, but that was a very necessary point for their whole you know, journey throughout the movie.
1: So when watching this movie and then reflecting on this movie, the challenges I had were I did enjoy it. I'm not saying it's a bad movie, so I don't want that to be misconstrued. But in some of the research I was doing, I even saw all the critically acclaimed and the, the accolades of this movie. And I, I saw something where it said in 1995, the U.S. Library of Congress deemed it you know, culturally historically and aesthetically significant and selected it for preservation in the National Film Registry. I just wasn't compelled to this movie to this great level that it seems society at that time and generations later did. So that, that was one of the challenges. I enjoyed it but I I feel like I was supposed to be blown away by it, and I I wasn't.
0: Do you think if George Lucas didn't do Star Wars, uh, would American Graffiti still be in the zeitgeist?
1: It was a hit on its own, and it probably allowed him the flexibility to create Star Wars.
0: But I mean, today, do you think it would have stood the test of time, right? We're talking about it now. If Star Wars never happened, would we have reached back to American Graffiti to talk about it?
2: I said, I think so. I mean, it was, it was a critical success. It's still critically revered. I don't think young dudes would be watching it because young dudes follow kind of uh, are more likely to follow fantasy and sci-fi than they are. um, I don't know, like coming of age period pieces. Uh, But I I still think that even now, uh, despite our, uh, um, Hmm. Skepticism of the movie. Skepticism is the wrong word, but our lack of love for the movie, it's still highly critically respected. I mean, how many Oscar movies do people still Oscar nominated films from like the seventies, do people still love and respect, even though there's not like the kind of cult following you see with, with Lucas product.
1: Yeah, I definitely see it from that perspective. And to answer KJ's question straight on from my perspective, of the whole premise of this movie, of this episode, would I have picked this film? The answer is no, because I picked this because I'm a Star Wars fan and I wanted to explore some more of Lucas's earlier works. However, I do think, and Tom was saying this as well, an older generation would still have been interested in reviewing this movie and actually sharing this movie probably with their next generation.
2: It's not yeah, a bad that's... movie.
0: No, I agree. Um and and I think Nikki hit the nail on the head, right? Yeah. Where we brought this to the table because you watched Star Wars and said, "Hey, let's finish the George Lucas uh, collection of what he's directed." So, yeah, I think that's the answer right there.
1: And to Tom's point, it's not a bad movie. It's just I think this was a nostalgia draw, and I'm just not drawn into that nostalgia. It's still a fun movie, not my favorite, but you know, it's still a, a well made movie.
2: And it's well directed. I mean, let's. It's probably better directed than episode four a new hope i would say i think he's because he's so constrained um he's forced to come up with things like the way people have conversations between cars right i think those scenes kind of have more life in them than a lot of the acting scenes in star wars what's such a draw in star wars is the world building his world building is so strong um but i think just in terms of of style this movie is far more stylish
0: was this your first watch tom yes i so i've seen this movie this might be my fourth or fifth i, I really enjoy it. i mean you guys are saying but i i really do I, i'll usually turn it on if i'm working on a project on the computer like it's a good movie to have on in the background and i wonder if you watch it again if some of that dialogue doesn't start to sound uh as stiff as some of the love scenes in episode two like it it you start like wait that's really Richard Dreyfus? because I've seen Richard Dreyfus do things and that that it looks like uh, you know uh, a performance that's being told to nope stiffer Beep, calm down you're, you're doing it. so I, I don't it know really you didn't like Richard Dreyfus in it he was my favorite part no he's he was he, he was good but well, I don't know if he was as good as he is in future films but i mean maybe that's you know a, yeah, an actor grows right yeah he's 26 but in this yeah he's... <laughs> there's even sometimes where he's mugging for the camera where um
2: he's kind of looking like eh, we're doing this now but oh i i i love that stuff it was so kind of i liked his sense of irony he played this character with that kind of sense
1: so far tom and doug are tied at two points each and kj has half a point we'll be right back after this quick commercial break This episode is proudly presented by Title Judge from Obnoxious Synopsis Limited. Does your brain hurt when trying to determine what a movie may be about solely by its name? I sure know mine does. Join the millions like me who already use Title Judge. Never waste firing synopsis on a synopsis again. Here's an example of what likely happens in American graffiti.
4: This is the story of a young man. Like many others out there, who strive for one thing. To design the greatest graffiti tag in history, or at least in America. He practices day and night over carefully selected musical montages to be the best. Just when he's at the culmination of mastering his art, the graffiti market is inundated with mass-produced Asian graffiti imports degrading the demand for top-shelf American-made graffiti. Undeterred by the artistic onslaught, he petitions the government to ban foreign graffiti. Just when it doesn't look like the measurable pass, the holdouts have a change of heart, and it's made a law. Long live American graffiti!
1: Title judge. Remember, you can always judge a movie by its title. And we're back. Before we get into the two remaining questions, Doug, we have a critical question we ask all our guests. In this season, the question is, if you could watch this movie with anyone, dead or alive, who would it be?
3: I guess Harrison Ford, just because of the people in this movie, I think he would be the most interesting person.
0: (laughs) I wonder if he'd have anything positive to say, right? He's kind of grouchy anyway, and then he's going to look back at this where he's... Do you think he had a big role, right? He's going to be like, oh, yeah, this movie.
1: Well, what I do think he would tell you is that he wasn't going to take the role because originally they wanted him to have a flat top. And he said, the only way I'm going to take this role is if I don't have to cut my hair because he was already getting a little disillusioned with acting. He was doing some carpentry at the time. And that's where the Stetson cowboy hat came in. So he'd probably tell you that.
2: (laughs) Apparently, he got the role because he did carpentry work for the casting director.
1: There you go, I didn't know him.
0: it's time for question three
1: Terry the toad fields is a man of many names, well, at least two. what is his machismo alter ego locked in
2: locked in I don't remember the. I don't remember a name. I'll lock in and description
1: okay, Tom start us off he
2: uh describes himself as a hunter who trains ponies, has a Jeep with four-wheel drive and a gun rack, um, which he uses to shoot things. When he's called out for shooting, poor little animals, he says, well, when you're shooting a bear, I figure it's either me or him. So, you know, his, his machismo is that, and then he had to uh, sell the ponies to buy his car, so that's his machismo personality. I don't remember if there's a name associated with it.
1: That's a pretty long name you got there, Tom. Doug, how about you? It would be uh, Terry the Tiger. KJ.
3: Yep, Terry the Tiger.
1: I would have accepted Terry the Tiger or just Tiger. <laughs> the The lady, the blonde, does refer to him as both. Tom, everything you said is true, but it does not answer the question. So the points will be going to kj and doug we started talking about this a little bit within the vignettes but i was interested in exploring more of the character interactions the reason i started with this question was i actually thought this whole sequence i bought into it after a while first i was like this is kind of ridiculous but i did actually find it as pretty decent comic relief what did you think of all of the different character interactions did any of them jump out at you specifically
2: I had to say, Richard Dreyfus was my favorite part of this. Um, one of my favorite interactions is when the, um, they're not called the pythons, they're called the what? The pharaohs. The gang, the pharaohs, uh, they're going to wrap a cord around the back axle of a police car so that when the police car tries to pull away, it, r- it rips the back axle out. And the, the head of the, the pharaohs kind of like sneaks across the street and Richard Dreyfuss just casually walks behind him completely upright. Uh, you know, it's this kind of um, really fun little ironic uh, shield his, his character is able to put up. Um, the other thing I loved was uh, Debbie, right? That was the girl who's going along with the tiger as, as he's known. Um, I love how she is obsessed. What we learn is we think she's kind of kind of a ditzy plom, and she sort of is, but she's also obsessed with a, a serial killer who puts goat heads next to the body. And so there's this little scene, it's, it's lovely scene where they're walking back after his car has been stolen. And she's just talking about this serial killer who like puts goats near his body and, and removes body parts and rearranges them. And uh, she's completely oblivious to the effect she's having on him. I think those are my two little favorite character
1: moments. She also wants to get her, a better view if it is happening around them. Uh, and then uh, with the pharaohs. Did you guys think that guy was like in his 30s? Like he did not look like a high school or whatever, you know? I I thought that was David Hasselhoff.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Traveling back in time.
1: Oh, this movie was big in Germany too.
0: (laughs) You know what else I liked about the characters? Uh, All the the main characters were friends. Like, you know, everybody was friends with the Toad. They were were all friends. And I think that helped the nostalgia of what, what Tom was talking about hanging out in high school, driving around, you're kind of friends with everybody, even if you've had scuffles or, or whatever, because you're just out aimless, there's no reason not to be friends unless you're the pharaohs and you want to take over this or you want to start a fight or whatever. But I really liked how, how it, they, they looked like they all enjoyed hanging out with each other.
1: Talking about the different interactions, Steve played by Ron Howard and thinking back to high school days, he's sitting there trying to convince his girlfriend that we're so strong that I think we should see other people because it'll show us like just that that's such like a high school dialogue to have <laughs> to justify it. It was ridiculous, but also I enjoyed it at the same time that they, he was even giving it a go.
3: <laughs> the other, uh, I guess, main character pairing uh, that I enjoyed was um, Milner, John Milner and uh, Carol. The the little girl that ends up in his car, which um, I I thought that led to some of the funniest dialogue, Um, even though it's uh, it it could have been a very inappropriate uh, pairing. And it, you know, some of the stuff they said, I think, would not. Would not be approved for movies today, (laughs) but uh, I thought it was funny and I I don't think it was um, I think it was set up in a way that was not creepy like it could have been yeah that is sweet and he's
2: he's a lot of fun to watch john milner played by um paul lamat who i think at this time he hadn't acted very much he was a boxer and um but I, i agree i think that was those sequences were a lot of fun. They, they had, they had really great chemistry (laughs) You know, I think of all the the male female pairings, they probably had the best chemistry and that's, um, Oh God, what's her name? Mackenzie Phillips. Is that right? She's the, uh, the daughter of uh, the papas from the
1: mama and the papas. Um, That is true. And also Paul Lamette, this was his first uh, feature film. He did a TV movie before that, but this was uh, his first feature film.
0: When he first comes on the, the screen, I think he's he's supposed to be kind of like James Dean, right? He's supposed to be this cool guy. But he ends up being a guy acting like James Dean, which I thought worked better than if he actually could have pulled off a James Dean. You know, he's a guy that's been in town too long. And uh, you know he was nostalgic for something that happened a little, a little earlier than what we see in the movie, as he says with the, the surfing rock isn't for him. And right, he, he is a guy that's three years older than everybody graduating high school. So yeah, he was great. I did enjoy that.
1: The other thing about that is he's almost like the, the old-timey tough guy. You know, now the tough guy is like ripped muscles. This guy just has a white t-shirt and slick hair, you
2: know? Like, yeah, he's the guy who's not going anywhere. Yeah. That's his, his whole thing. Everybody else, I mean, the toad is, is still in high school. Um, but really, you know, he, he, he's a comic relief character, right? He's bottom in this story. More than anything. Uh, the other characters, their, their stories are about leaving, about getting out. And, w- you know, um, I think one of the problems I have with this movie is it, it treats getting out and staying as equally valid actions um, without any kind of, with a bizarre feeling towards which one it prefers. I, I found that a little confusing. But regardless, he's the guy who's going to stay behind and whose time is, is coming due which is how that chase scene goes, right? In the chase scene, he was going to lose except um, uh, Harrison Ford's Bob accidentally crashes the car. So his time is up. That's what we're watching, a character whose time is up.
1: Before I go on to the next question, I have to bring up during that crash that... Everyone got out of a pretty devastating crash with barely a scratch. I know Harrison Ford was grabbing his arm a little bit. He puts pressure on it, so I don't think it was fully dislocated or anything. So that was pretty an amazing feat that they all were uh, barely (laughs) dazed by that uh, incident. That's what cars were like back then. (laughs) They were just like steel traps. Well, that's the thing. The car survived, the people did it. (laughs) That's the thing back then, Mm -hmm. usually. So I'm going to. Move on to the last question. We have a very close match here. Doug is in the lead with three. KJ has a whopping one and a half, and Tom has two full points.
0: It's time for question four.
1: At the end of the film, there's a title card sharing the fate of some of the main characters. How many were included? Locked in. Locked in. Locked in. KJ, how many?
0: There were four characters included. Four. I'm also going to say four.
1: Well, you are all correct. Doug was flawless on this episode and will take it down. But what I wanted to do is explore more of this. I know we've talked a bit about the characters. And one of the things that I thought was interesting, some of uh, George Lucas's motivations, three of the four characters were actually representing Lucas at different stages of his life. He said Kurt was his personality in the college years at USC. John was the teenage street racing in junior college years. And Toad was his nerdy years, like when he was a freshman in high school and had trouble getting dates. It's very interesting to me how he based most of those characters on his own personalities. The other thing I, I wanted to bring up in this is there were some controversies with this film, specifically this end title card. It only portrayed the male main characters. And Tom, I think, brought this up earlier on too, about how some of the females ended up being more of plot devices. The writers who wrote the second draft with George Lucas, uh, Willard Huck, and Gloria Katz, they found the ending very depressing. And they really did not like that Lucas only showed the male characters at the end. His excuse was it would create another title card uh, and didn't want that. But let's talk a little bit, not only about any kind of controversies that happened in the movie, but this actual ending of this film.
0: So I guess if, if they represented uh, George Lucas at different points in his life, he might've also said, hey, I could have ended up in Nam. Hey, I could have ended up stuck here like John was but I happened to be the Kurt that got out and then did something artistic. So I, I, that's a that's another. I didn't I didn't realize that those were you know Lucas's.
3: I, I think it's interesting that Steve is the one that's left out because he seemed like more of the everyman that I think more people would relate to. But he never
1: left. He stayed put.
2: Yeah, he becomes an insurance salesman, right? That's that's the thing, which I guess is a fate equivalent to death in Vietnam by the standards of the title card. Um,
1: Well, he was from Modesto too, and he's the only one who stayed the townie and didn't get out there and explore the world.
2: Yeah. You get the impression that that's, that's, what's going on, that it seems to be with these title cards, like you were saying, KJ, it's sort of a, it's sort of a critique or a, a sort of a recognition that this is lost innocence. Um, which I find a little confusing because it seems to be a movie about coming of age, right? And we, we've talked about coming of age movies a lot on this podcast for some reason, even though we rarely do them. Um, but, uh, you know, in a coming of age movie, a person becomes an adult, right? And they might not technically be an adult, but they get to that place of, of maturity. And that's what this is about. And different people coming of age in different ways. You have to leave. You have to leave and have an adventure. That's what Wolfman tells, um, tells Kurt. Um, you know, home is. I I already have a home. I already have friends. I don't need to reinvent that. That's what. uh, That's what. Um, Steve discovers. Uh, you know, and fair enough. But in the end, it's like it's framing coming of age as, kind of like the destruction of a world. Which I guess in some way is true. I mean, time passes and culture changes, and the 70s are different from the 50s and whatnot. But the downer note is really bizarre. It's like, what are we supposed to get out of that? That we were supposed to remain children forever? I mean, after all, like, do, do you, are we supposed to think like John Milner had it going on? He was doing the right thing by, Kind of trying to make a claim to his high school days, even though he's 22.
1: I mean, I found it kind of incoherent. Even his ending was accidental. He was killed by a drunk driver. Which does what for us? Nothing.
2: <laughs> like what? Like what are we supposed to get from that? Like no, whatever, I don't whatever know. You, whatever you do, you're screwed. Unless you become an artist and hide in Canada to avoid the draft, which is why I imagine Kurt is in Canada, right? That's probably the reason.
1: You could always become an insurance agent.
2: Yeah. You know? But that's also a dead end, <laughs> right? And that's supposed to, I, that's how I read that. When you find out that, you know, Ron Howard's character becomes an insurance agent and never leaves Modesta, that's not good. That's a, That's a kind of a failure to launch, which cancels out a lot of this, like, well, if I already have friends in a home, why should I go find it elsewhere? That devalues that conclusion. So you know, it seems like Lucas wants to give his characters these these varieties of ways of coming of age, while at the same time critiquing the sort of end of innocence in a historic sense, the end of innocence that starts with Kennedy being killed, Robert Kennedy being killed, Vietnam, the the student revolution of 68, you know, all these things. Um, But he's kind of conflating the coming of age of human beings who were supposed to care about to the end of innocence of an era of a a
1: a way this country was the ending was my biggest challenge with this film just across the board
3: i think it might have been better without the closing title card uh you know just to um yeah just like you can imagine what might happen to these characters on your own i i guess it's this thing i have with these ending cards on other movies too. Most of the time, I mean, I can't even think of any good, good ones where I enjoyed it. Maybe comedies where they put something funny in there
1: that happens to the character, but yeah. Anchorman. yeah. Now they do it as cliche. Like it's a joke. Whereas then it was not a joke,
2: <laughs> but it's doing something different from the normal title card, which just reassures you, right? Normally you get the title card that, you know, everything kind of worked out. Okay. Here it's, it's providing an ironic reframing of the film we've just seen. It's not about coming of age. It's about loss of innocence. And these things are very different in how they're framed.
0: Do we think Lucas knew somebody who went to Nam, right? Obviously, yeah. Do we know, do we think Lucas knew somebody who stayed in Modesto and became a sailor? Yeah. So these also could just be, here's how boring life is and here's what happens, right? He showed you a slice of life that was probably more, more exciting than any given night in modesto but it's kind of the the summation of all of his memories in in one night sure that's cool and then he might have looked around and been like we you know i got to go and make these movies and do this fun stuff but most people end up um you know doing something (laughs) kind of normal quote unquote or 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 have tragic deaths you know that that's i don't know
1: (laughs) it's time for Movie Rand. So there was still one other potential question I had in case we needed a bonus question to break a tiebreaker. And I thought it might be fun just to say it anyway. The question is, why did Terry the Tiger sell his hunting horses?
0: Oh, I think I said. Yeah, I think it's been answered.
1: Yes. Yes, it was. to a great degree, and that's why I was glad we didn't have a tie. <laughs> and yes, Tom, you said it perfectly. Uh, he had to buy a car, a Jeep pickup with a four-wheel drive, and a gun rack that he uses primarily for hunting.
2: For a gun rack, it's where I keep my guns for the hunting.
1: <laughs> and if it came down to a tiebreaker, it would have been whoever got the most detailed answer <laughs> to cover all. But I have to say, Tom, you hit all the points. Okay.
2: <laughs> it's, what a glorious second place I'm in. <laughs> yeah. So a uh, thing about movie something I wanted to bring, um, bring up because I was, I was reading about th- this film and something that's interesting is the way these young people respond to authority and how authority is, is framed. And what I thought was interesting was people in authority are not a big part of this movie They come in at certain points but they're they're not really that vital and there's one you know usually in coming of age there's kind of a a a a tangle with authority right that you know you have to deal with authority figures or if especially it's like a a a fun last night type movie you know there's always the 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 principal or whatever who sucks and they want to get a little revenge or they want to get away from him um, Rooney. yeah but that's <laughs> that's not really a a, a focus of this movie and i was wondering what you guys thought of of that that absence i don't think there's a song
0: that would have worked that lucas could have put in authority figure to. so i'm still convinced that you know headcanon this is a soundtrack none of the songs of that era led themselves to a uh, you know the town sheriff or, or somebody fitting into a vignette with I, I what would even be playing in the background there, you know. That I think that's what it would come down to. That's actually not a
2: bad point at all. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously. Like <laughs> I, I know you're now 35th episode. And I've had one good point. So please mark this down. Well, I, I didn't mean I didn't mean it that condescendingly. I, I realize that I came It's just you described it as a headcanon and it isn't a headcanon. Oh no. All right. No, I don't think so. I don't think it's like you're not inventing a plot that, that is going on I, in the background been... that we all have to assume happens <laughs> I, for your well, point to make sense. A
1: prequel a prequel? There is a yeah.
2: sequel. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I have been
0: misusing the word headcanon often. <laughs> <laughs>
1: i think
4: this
2: (laughs) yeah but i mean it is it's a musical and everything has to kind of be choreographed sort of it's sort of improv over musical scenes so yeah that may be a good point it just doesn't go with the mood of the songs to have that kind of tension
1: i can only recall two incidents with law enforcement one is when John Milner gets pulled over, and the cop says he wants to catch him in the act, so he gives him like a minor ticket. And the funny scene that you guys discussed earlier, where they rip the back axle off of the cop car. Were there any others?
2: There's only two I can recall. The principal. He tells the principal to um
1: to oh right a duck
3: I think yeah something
1: very menacing. Yeah, uh,
3: go go kiss a duck, marblehead.
1: It's <laughs> an <laughs> so authority figure, not law enforcement, but authority figure. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: But it's yeah, that that I thought was a strange absence. Um, but I, I really like your point, KJ. It's just we're grooving, right? Yeah,
3: that's what that's we're, what the fifties is. It's we're grooving, grooving around. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I I think it also felt a little weird because at least for me, like when uh, the the officer. Pulled Milner over. I felt like it was foreshadowing that he was gonna catch him, uh, you know, in the movie. Um, and then also, you know, when when they ripped the axle off the police car, uh, that's you know fairly serious. Uh, and there's no consequence after that. And um, Kurt, uh, he said something about stand stand for justice, or something like that. And you know he's. Like you know, he's not hiding his face or anything. He's you know he's leaning out of the cars. So if they knew who he was, they knew he would be behind it, which kind of defeats the whole purpose of sneaking around and stuff. Well, and and
0: everybody knows he stole from that arcade or whatever with the pinball machines too, right? That he got away with that. He's he leaving. Away. That was another <laughs> weird thing. He's leaving town. It doesn't matter. You can do whatever oh, you want. You know, stealing.
1: this this was the '60s. You know, they didn't have the internet. <laughs>
3: yeah
0: (laughs) where did all the money in the pinball machines go i don't know it mustn't have
1: been when kurt was here he's cool (laughs) he got a scholarship (laughs) i i couldn't end this episode without bringing up one of the thoughts that i had during this movie and i wrote it down in my notes here cruising equals tinder people are just driving down the street talking through car doors very slowly and jumping in and out of vehicles like nowadays that just seems so unsafe <laughs> think about it harrison ford's character comes up and and a girl just says i pull over i'll get in your car like at that, that time that might have just been a way of life but what do you guys think doesn't that seem extremely foreign yes and no i mean there wasn't like where
2: we grew up we in high school when we started driving right we didn't have cell phones
1: but I, I mean, I remember kind of driving around trying to find people. No, we drove around trying to find people. We didn't pick people up on the road and have strangers just jump in our cars. That's the part that I'm talking. And I, when I was watching yeah. it with my wife, we were almost making a joke like it was like Tinder. Oh, if they liked them, oh, pull over to the right. <laughs> you know, if we didn't like them, we keep driving. Like that's the part that I was saying, uh, not yeah. the finding people stuff. The, the, the actual. Culture. The cruising culture, the transaction, if you will, of picking up a date to drive in your car with, that was just.
2: Yeah, I, I, I apparently that is a thing that happened.
1: Oh, I know. It just seems <laughs> yeah. so foreign. And that's yeah. not too long ago. Yeah. Yeah, I, I kind of li- I, I like the, the, the
2: I guess what you would call world building, even though it's mm. not sci fi that or, or world capturing of that. Um, I understood that culture. A little bit, right? The, the youth culture and the cruising culture, and that you know that that is kind of itself sitting on a precipice because once the hippies come, that that goes away, right? That's not how you meet women anymore. Um, and so I, you know, I I did like that. It's also car porn, right? A, a lot of this movie is about looking at uh, beautiful beautiful vehicles, you know, move around. They're, they're as as important as the people. Um, I think that type of thing is, is you know, is also a lot of fun. Watching how the car itself is is a form of flirtation. Putting forward a fast car or a nice car is uh, is the the means of peacocking at this time. You know, and so you go up and down, up and down. You know, it's, they're like birds, right? <laughs> Moving up and down this block, trying to trying to get laid, uh, showing their their wonderful chrome. I remember, you know, when the toad is in the, um, oh, what's the car he is in? Um, I don't remember, but he's in a, a beautiful car. And uh, they're like, oh man, how's a person like you in this nice vehicle? Like you just see how incongruous it is. in this, the, the white, must have you know the, the white I think it was uh, a Chevy
1: Impala I think it was a Chevy Impala uh, yeah. I'm sorry uh,
2: no but and, and also the, the Thunderbird right you know the most beautiful woman in the world is in the most beautiful car on on the street there's an equivalence here that um and you know the toad plotline is about the the kind of both the disruption of that equivalence but also the, its affirmation because toad when he steps into you know steps into a higher class vehicle than his kind of social status implies he gets kind of, he gets kind of rammed down, um, even though he does get the girl
1: in the end. You are absolutely right. Well, Doug, I'd like to congratulate you once again for winning this week's episode. It was so great having you back on talking pictures trivia. Thanks. Glad to be here. All right. Hopefully we can get you back for another episode this season. Check out our website, TalkingPicturesTrivia.com, for more information about us and our episodes. You can find us wherever you listen to podcasts as well as our YouTube channel. We are extremely grateful for any positive reviews as those tell others like you find us. If you like what you hear, remember to like and subscribe to our show. Do you think American Graffiti is worthy of its critical acclaim? Leave a comment on our YouTube channel and let's continue the conversation. Join us next week when we discuss a movie that's been on KG's list for a while from 1984 Footloose should be an interesting one to talk about. See you then.
4: Ding, 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 ding.